0: I'm Katherine Spearing and this is Uncertain. Okay, I am so excited about this episode with Dr. Hillary McBride, discussing her book, The Wisdom of Your Body. For two reasons. One, I am a trauma nerd and the embodiment and reintegration with our bodies is a huge part of healing from trauma. Second, in evangelical culture, we receive a lot of messages about the body being bad. We're told to control our bodies, to deny our flesh, but as we'll learn in this episode, that's actually anti-Christian. As always, Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. Guests on Uncertain are sharing their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Tears of Eden. Here is my interview with Hilary McBride. How <laughs> are you? Good to see you. How's it yeah. going? It's going well. Yourself? Good. Good to see
1: Oh, thank you so much. much. Thank you.
0: Yes. That's so good. I just started with a somatic experiencing therapist and Uh I'm super into embodiment. So cool. Like you're the, you're the prime audience. I loved it. It was really good. So yeah, I'm going to gush for, for, for a little bit. So thanks for writing it. How are you doing?
1: Pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm doing well. It's been a busy season. I just had a kid. I just had a baby and yeah. becoming a parent and <laughs> launching a book at the same time is uh, a, lot. Don't, a lot. Don't recommend doing it all at once. I'm uh, sure you have
0: a yeah, lot. Of- but
1: otherwise I feel like great. Yeah. Wow.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I saw it like on your Instagram, when you like announced that you were pregnant, I was like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> there was like a lot of stuff and then suddenly you we were
1: pregnant. I know. I know it's true. <laughs> it's, like six it's true.
0: Months along. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. I baby and
0: that. baby and book.
1: Two different kinds of yeah. creative endeavors <laughs> in exactly. the world.
0: Yeah. So I really loved how you just set it up with laying the foundation of why we're so disembodied and yeah. just like all the different cultural ramifications that have led to that that was really helpful and then Mm. just kind of wrapping wrapping the book up with that too of like Mm. how do we find our way back to ourselves that was really awesome i i am newly acquainted with my body just like through yoga and then doing trauma work and now somatic Mm -hmm. experiencing so i just i loved it and i'll probably read it again and then the I also yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and then I also loved how it was just like an embodied book itself with all of mm. the exercises at the end and the questions and just how to ask those questions because I just think we wow. need so much. Oh, yeah.
1: thank you. That's so meaningful for me. I mean I I would hope that it would land that way for people. I think that's what every author wants to hear, right? (laughs) That it brings the reader into the place that they want them to go. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm so, I'm just really touched. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for reading it and sharing it and having me on to, to chat. Yes. Excited. So the title of
0: the book is called wisdom of your body. And I would love to hear you just describe that wisdom and what do our bodies have to offer us? Yes.
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to try to succinctly <laughs> capture the thesis of the book, and of course, there's so much to say here. So I wrote a whole book. This about is it. a tip of the iceberg
0: uh-huh. episode. So people okay. who are listening, I'm not covering everything in the book. Right. <laughs> <this> so <episode>, <laughs> yeah. just read the book. So uh-huh, uh, that's yeah.
1: Right. As I much as like you can. Most of us, we have experiences in our life that take us out of being in our bodies. And we leave our bodies because we're told we should, because it's too overwhelming to be there, because we're scared of it, because for whatever reason we learn that our bodies are are bad, that we need to get away from them. And, And as a result, like our bodies start talking to us about that, our bodies will say, this isn't working, you know, the way that you're living your life isn't working. And yet the irony is that because we've kind of learned to see ourselves as separate from our body, we see those messages that our body is giving us as being proof that our body is bad. So it kind of feeds back into this story that the body needs to be controlled. It's, it's bad. It's getting in the way of us living the good life. And what I'm trying to do with the book, I would say is one, talk about what it means to be human and remember that our humanness is deeply connected to our bodies. In fact, it's the only place where humanness exists. And then the other part of it is to help us reframe some of these things that we have seen or have come to believe are problems and are proof that our bodies is bad are actually just ways that our body is trying to love us into wholeness. The way that our body is saying, hey, that system doesn't work or this doesn't feel good for a reason or you need to rest or feed yourself or there's some unfinished business you have to deal with. And instead of seeing those things as problems, we can see them as our body's wisdom. And in that way, even be more compassionate with ourselves, more loving, more present and start to heal our social fabric and change the way that we understand bodies in general. I got emotional just hearing it because
0: it's just, it's so the opposite of like what you hear, Um, Uh just like, and then, and then all the numbing things that we do and like, oh, depression, Mm. let's do this to like, get rid of it or, you know, anger that's bad. How do we stop it? You know, all those things that we do to try and like hide from our bodies when our bodies are just being part of us and, yes. and trying to telling the out. truth. Yeah.
1: yes, mm-hmm. Actually, you're right. That's such a great way of languaging it. Like our bodies are not only, um, not the problem, but our bodies are actually calling us into being awake in this world. They're calling us into connection with ourselves. They're calling us into more spirituality, more wisdom, more safety, um, more congruence. And that's not something that most of us were told. In fact, we're told mm-hmm. that the body is this thing Uh, that can't be trusted, that leads us astray. And that is somehow um, like a liability. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be subdued, conquered even. Mm -hmm. So this is a a real flip on that script.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned both things in the book, just like wider culture and how we're receiving those messages. And then also you mentioned just like faith-based culture, specifically Mm -hmm. evangelicalism. What are the similar messages like coming from Uh both?
1: Yeah. So I would say that in, in evangelical culture, we're seeing a narrative that the body is bad. And that I would say that sexuality is a real, real significant concern somehow is going to interfere or taint the spiritual purity of, yeah, of the person. So the sexuality is seen as a as a barrier to spirituality, your spiritual life. And then I would say in kind of mainstream culture, there is still a similar message that the body is bad and that somehow like sexuality is a problem. And yet there's a little bit more of an opportunity for sexuality to be seen as a kind of social currency in a way that's permissive. So there's like these kind of opposite messages around that, but still the body is bad. Sexuality needs to be controlled. And I think there's like really an, i Another overarching theme is that women's bodies are a problem, that women's bodies are the thing that really compromises um, men's integrity, women's bodies are something that needs to be managed, they need to be tucked away or objectified, there's a lot of focus on women's bodies being the problem or somehow an object So I think those are some current themes that run through it. And then there's some other themes too around emotion. So emotion is a bodily process. And I would say in mainstream culture and in evangelicalism, for the most part, outside of like maybe some of these like heightened states that we get into, maybe at a concert or maybe at a worship service or something, emotion is meant to be suppressed and controlled and is meant to be really conquered and and seen as, yeah, something that makes you uncredible. So those are some similarities, I think. How did we...
0: Get here, like get yeah. to those place. <laughs> yeah. because there are so many similarities. Yeah. And I think, specifically, the sex conversation, as I've been reading books that are not coming from an evangelical vein about sex and sexuality, the messages. That they're trying to undo are very similar, like mm-hmm. with the, just the the dichotomy between men and women and how they're treated, and then the shame that women feel for enjoying, and all mm-hmm. like those are very similar messages, both cultures. Yeah, so where did this come from? How did we? Get yeah, here? well.
1: I mean, we can go all the way back and start by talking about Plato and some of Plato's thoughts around the body and the spirit being separate from each other. And then we get that followed up by Descartes and we have Gnosticism woven into there and these, all of these different forces that make us think that the body and the spirit or the mind, depending on who you're talking to, that these are distinct entities and that they, kind of they are at odds with each other. The body is really seen as kind of the old ball and chain for our mind, which is, The purest, it's the path to God, it's the the access point for our spirituality. And I think the irony here when we think about this is that these these sources, kind of Plato, Descartes, Western philosophy, I would add in their colonization, all sorts of different systemic value systems about how we create hierarchies within ourselves and within the human body and within the kind of their global body, that these are things that have impacted the church. And I think that the church likes to believe it is outside of culture, right? The evangelical space likes to think that they are- We're so so different. Yeah, we're so different, we're distinct. And it's by (laughs) how we are different that you're gonna know that we're sanctified, that we're set apart, Mm -hmm. that we're this kind of unique community of people who are chosen by God without realizing that all of the same things or I wouldn't say all the same things, but a lot of the same things that are happening in the church are happening outside of the church. In fact, like patriarchy, there's lots of people who will leave the church or leave faith and will say, like, I need to get away from these oppressive systems, only to walk into government or medical systems or educational systems and have the same kind of oppressive hierarchies that are happening, where women are continuing to be subdued and oppressed. So, I'd say we've got these long-standing historical traditions philosophical thoughts, kind of spiritual, like even heresy. The church identified that Gnosticism was one of the original heresies, and yet it is deeply woven into our faith communities. Like those things shape the worldviews of people inside and outside of the church. And I think we just maybe are a little bit more blind to it inside the church.
0: And I think we've been figured out a way to kind of wrap it in spiritualization Mm -hmm. and you, you brought up some like scripture verses too, like, like near the end of like the, what we use to kind of justify (laughs) this thinking about the body, which I'm so glad that you broke that down. That was really helpful too. How is this disembodied culture? How is this problematic for our Mm. culture? You may already know this, but The Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. How is this disembodied culture? How is this problematic for our mm. culture?
1: Yeah, I think that there are a, d- a bunch of different ways it's problematic. So we'll take a few a few pieces right off the top. One, it fragments us from ourselves. We live a kind of half-life or we live in, in a way that is at odds with ourselves. So I make the case in the book too, that there's a there's a connection between this and psychopathology or suffering or mental health issues that when we are not tuned into what's going on to our body, we can't heal our trauma. We can't thrive. We can't be connected to who we really are. But the stretch I want to make too, is that I think that our bodies and the way that we understand bodies culturally are an important part of undoing systemic oppression. So most of the forms of systemic oppression that we encounter have to do with isms, you know, related to the body, which body is valuable, which body is considered a problem, which body needs to disappear, which body is valued. And so what happens when we, when we change our relationship to our body is that ideally what happens is we start to change our relationship to all bodies and we have more resources, more resilience, more wholeness, and we're better able to start creating communities that reflect the things that really matter, including everyone being able to inhabit their body safely. So I would say those are the two things like wholeness, as individuals, and then wholeness as communities. You brought up the, the man box,
0: which mm-hmm. was like super fascinating. And last night I was at a friend's house and so she's a therapist and I was with her and her husband. And I was just like, have you guys heard of the man box? <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> Telling we're like, everybody it's all the It's
0: such um, an interesting
1: piece of research.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. then that, like that, when there's that man box, which is all of those things. And I'll have you break it down. Cause you'll do it better than me, but have all of those things. And then men tend to be in power. And so uh-huh. like, what is the definition of a man is a disembodied human. And then right. they're like on top. So then they're oh. dictating basically that we yes. should all be this way. Yes. So we're having to, yeah, basically fight from the bottom up <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to change it. Nice. But yeah, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the man box and how that's sure. affected This, yeah.
1: So the man box is a it's an empirical study which looked at gender role socialization around men and kind of restrictive narratives of masculinity as it relates to emotional expression. So what is a way that a man is allowed to show up societally, and what are some of the things that? Are, he feels are expected of him based on his culture in order to define being a good or an ideal man. And we see that there are seven pillars of the man box that keep men trapped in this restrictive ideal that actually ends up hurting them and the people around them. So we see self-sufficiency, right? I've got to do it alone. Acting tough. I'm going to be strong. I'm in charge. I'm not going to show any weakness. The expectation of attractiveness. So I need to look good, rigid masculine gender roles. So these are black and white binaries. It's very clear about when I'm being masculine or a man versus when I'm, you know, as the, as the rhetoric goes weak or like a girl or of you know, effeminate heterosexuality and homophobia are part of the man box. So, again, this feeds into these rigid masculine gender roles. If we are not masculine, then we are, you know, as this again, the trope goes gay, like a woman. There is this kind of you must appear hyper masculine. There's a hypersexuality and sexual powerist. So, the expectation that somebody is the sexual conqueror, that they are in charge. And then, lastly, ag- aggression and control. So being powerful and aggressive as a way of having authority in a situation. And what we see is that people who are inside the man box, although they are more aligned with the masculine ideal, are actually more prone to have depression, suicidality, more likely to perpetrate acts of violence against other people, more likely to feel profoundly lonely. Yeah, more likely to feel isolated and be unable to talk about the things that are going on for them. So the contrast to this is that there are men who find themselves outside of the man box and then often create some challenges for them socially because they feel like, you know, they're not aligning with what culture expects and will sometimes get teased for that or bullied or harassed. But ironically, they are more intact emotionally. They are more healthy psychologically. They have better relationships, have more satisfaction in their lives and are more protected against mental health vulnerabilities. So it seems that being in the man box is a way that men learn to create belongingness, but it actually interferes with their ability to be deeply known and seen and belong in an authentic and vulnerable way. Wow. Yeah. So it's having
0: the exact opposite yes. desire.
1: Exactly. Of,
0: of what it what it's created for and what yeah. it's meant to be. Yeah. Sorry. so curious. Like, how did they uh-huh. get men to respond to this? This
1: study. Well, researchers are very (laughs) persuasive. They have ways of making making people interested. Right. (laughs) There was like I think there was about over thirty five hundred men who participated. Was it the UK, North America, and Mexico? I think is the sample that they worked with. And so there's a broad spectrum of men uh, from different cultures, primarily Westernized cultures that have been impacted by globalization and really, like, I think what's compelling about research, whether someone's incentivized to participate or not, is you get to say, like, you feel important. You feel like you're contributing to scientific theory. And so lots of people are like, wow, I'm being asked questions about my life. And I'm going to answer these questions as a way to help people learn more about mm-hmm. being human. I think, yeah, maybe they, maybe it was sort of like generative or generous, or they had some sort of like, yeah. Yeah. Like kindness towards humanity. To, right. To help right. us understand these Yeah, it is. It yeah. is interesting. Like, especially for men who are in the man box, it's surprising to think about them wanting to volunteer their time to talk about emotions, exactly. and fill out survey inventories, and whatnot.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Or admitting, I don't know, I just feel like culturally that might be some way someone is, but then. Culturally, they're not going to admit that that's the way that they are, mm-hmm. on a, a lot of times. And so, like, getting people to, like, anyway, that was fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you saw the connection. Yeah. Digressing. Because we, especially if, like, one of the pillars of the man box is self sufficiency or appearing like confident or in control, or maybe mm-hmm. having, like, a, I don't know, the, the need to act tough. You Mm -hmm. think that they might not necessarily be likely to disclose that they're struggling with depression or suicidality. And yet what we know is that underneath all of the stories that we learn about rigid gender roles, the humanness that we were born with doesn't go away just because that's the only way that we're allowed to show up socially. All of the Mm -hmm. feelings that people feel like they can't show don't disappear just because they have a really kind of strict masculine mask on. They have that sadness is still there. Just desperately waiting to come out, maybe hoping for a researcher to ask a question.
0: Mm -hmm. And let's move into just trauma. And can you talk a little bit about impact of trauma on the body and then how embodied living might help us heal from trauma?
1: Yeah. So one way to describe what the, what trauma does to our body is that it changes the way that our nervous system responds to our world around us. So our bodies are really good at Linking, storing, maybe another word is like taking memories, taking sensory snapshots of the things that are going on for us around us at the time that something overwhelming is happening. And that's one of the ways to describe a traumatic response is that we feel totally overwhelmed. We feel confused. We feel powerless. Something negative and unexpected has happened. And our body is saying, this is too much for me to handle. And because it's so threatening to our survival to go through a psychological trauma, our body stores memory of everything that's going on at the, at the time that the trauma happens. So we're storing sensory memory, like what, what the smell is, we're storing proprioceptive memory, how our body is positioned relative to our spine, we're storing ocular proprioceptive memory, where our eyes are looking, all of that is getting stored in this package of memories that's connected to a physiological activation response. And then we're just walking through the world and our body is picking up on cues in new situations saying, you know, if I anthropomorphize our uh, nervous systems, our nervous systems are saying, you know, this, this new situation reminds me of that old one. I think I better get kicked into top gear here and to like kick it up a notch so I can protect myself if I'm in danger again. So our bodies are storing this trauma and then responding to the world around us based on what reminds us of the trauma we've been through before. And while we might think of our bodies as kind of being outdated or the kind of those reactions being problematic, what's actually happening is our body is saying, I'm not quite sure that the trauma is over. I need some convincing to know that I'm actually safe again, that that thing isn't going to happen. So we, Beat ourselves up for having panic attacks. We get frustrated with the fact that we're, you know, sweaty and clammy and lost our words in that, you know, scary situation or a situation that felt normal for other people, but it's kind of scary for us. Instead of saying, wow, that's my body telling me I have some unfinished business and I need to do some healing work. So our body is constantly telling us how, what we're going through in the present reminds us of something that was scary for us before. But if we don't know that we often get insecure or scared, or we try really hard to just kind of shove down that knowing and manage it some other way when really our body is calling us home to ourselves.
0: And so how does just paying attention help the healing process? And I, I that's how I'm describing embodied living It's just, Paying attention to the body. It's
1: right. It is paying attention, allowing our awareness to be in our body. Well, we're going to notice those things when they happen sooner. We're also going to be able to then regulate ourselves. We're going to be able to take them possibly to somebody who could help us with them. And we can say, Hey, I have this reaction. Can you help me make sense of it? Or can you help me complete? the thing that my body wants to do that makes me think I'm still in it. I'm still looping. It's still going around and around and around so I can have a new experience of myself, Mm -hmm. but it's really hard to resolve those things. If we're ignoring them, if we don't want to honor them, if we're not slowing down to spend time with them, to figure out what's going on, but our body really, really is constantly speaking up. And when we listen and when we tune in, that allows us figure out what to do next
0: along the same the same lines i feel like this is really important for just the community of folks that i work for which is survivors of spiritual abuse and one of the challenges of for folks who've survived spiritual abuse is no one no one hit you no one Mm -hmm. raped you no one stole from you you know and there's no there's no physical there's no bruise yeah Mm -hmm. Yet i loved how you described the damage that can be caused from like non-physical injury, Mm -hmm. I guess, is Mm -hmm. how you phrased it. And can you just describe that a little bit, how there can be an injury in your body when no one touches you?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, our bodies are like, again, here we hear the dualism. I think a lot of people who experience spiritual abuse will think like that exists in some mysterious outside of us spiritual realm that is somewhere outside of the body, but our spirit exists inside of us. Our spirituality is about our humanness, our experience of ourself in connection with everything around us, and so anything that happens to us spiritually is an embodied experience. Anything that happens to us interpersonally is a bodily experience. And it these categories of feeling the kind of the separateness within the spheres of our existence, like separating spirituality from psychology, or separating psychology from physiology really start to break down when we look at how our trauma tells the truth about what we've been through, our reactions about the way that our brains adapt and develop and the stories that we learn about ourselves and how that impacts the way we show up in space and move our bodies and feel emotions and get close to people or keep other people away, how we access memory. I mean, all of the things that happen spiritually are also bodily, And there is nowhere that we can go to get away from being a body. So unfortunately, as much as like, it might be helpful for us at times to think of spirituality as distinct because maybe it helps us feel like we can escape our bodies or it feels like, okay, if it's just contained to that realm that I don't still don't have to pay attention to my body, which ironically is one of the markers of a spiritual abusive community or context is that we are fragmented from ourselves. We believe that our body is bad. Coming back home to our body is not only the way that we figure out how to do the healing, but part of the healing itself, because we are reconnecting to ourselves in a way that the community or the abuse pulled us apart from ourselves. So it is about, it is not only the way to be whole, but it is how we figure out how to be whole as well Mm. to come back to our bodies.
0: Man. Yeah. And then, and then how, you know, yes, like separating from a spiritual community or any of those things that are triggering that trauma or reminding Mm -hmm. the trauma there's, there's a season for that and a need for that too, but just the separation isn't necessarily going to instigate the healing. There needs to be more. Yes, uh, attunement and and paying yeah. attention yeah, with well that said. trauma. All right, how might someone who doesn't have the privilege of being able bodied interact with embodiment when they mm-hmm. might feel like their body's betrayed them or they view, view their body as broken? And that's kind of building yeah. on the trauma thing too, because you have uh-huh. those responses, and you're like,
1: "What's wrong with me? <laughs> like, what is yeah. happening?" Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, so we have two ways of looking at disability. One is the social model and one is the medical model. And the medical model suggests that disability means that there's something wrong with the, the person, that their, their body is somehow broken or defective or atypical in a way that you know needs to be managed. And what that does is it tends to reinforce the kind of pathology of disability, which is inherently ableist. I mean, what I want to propose, and this is not my thinking, these are just kind of categories that I'm presenting in the book, but, but the social model operates as an antidote to that, which is to say that there's actually nothing wrong with a body that is differently abled or disabled. There's something wrong with the society that doesn't make room for that body. So if a person, let's just say, uses a mobility aid and is having a hard time getting up a step because they can't, is there's something wrong with the person's body? Or is there something wrong with the society that didn't think about having more ways to get into a building besides having steps? Like maybe there's nothing right, and I'm saying this kind of tongue in cheek, maybe there's nothing wrong with anybody's body. Maybe we need to have a, a society that has a wider view of what kind of bodies need to access space and how to access space and change the way that we create architecture and infrastructure and systems around that. I know, that within the disability community, that it is, and this is a community that I identify as being a part of, although I don't use any mobility aids or things that are like kind of obviously trigger awareness of disability. It is, this is a community that sometimes has the hardest time being embodied because there's so much social pressure to think of the body as being bad or there's like things that are lost uh, because of the body on the other side is sometimes the most embodied community. This is a community who is constantly sensing into what is going on in the body, constantly aware of it, um hyper aware of bodies because they have to be because we have to be. And so I would say that it's kind of like a like, it's, again, we have to check our ableist thinking to assume that it dis- like embodiment is only for the privileged. In fact, it's often the people who have the most privilege who are able to leave their bodies because they don't have to think about bodies at all. You don't even, like I can, because of my level of ability, I can just walk into any building that I want to. I can be a floating head and not have to think about how to access space and how I'm going to get there. Uh, so it's important for us to remember that embodiment is not only for Those who are able, in fact, people who have like higher degrees of ability or don't identify as being a part of the disability community are often the most disembodied because they don't have to pay attention to their body at all.
0: That's beautiful, yeah. And that idea that someone who identifies as disabled might be more embodied just because there's constant reminders (laughs) of their body, they can't exactly forget about their body. Yeah, that's really cool. So, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but could you? Like kind of dive in a maybe a little deeper on how specific faith communities contribute to this disembodied mm-hmm. living yeah. and how it might show, show up specifically in a faith community.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it, to be really concrete, most of us are told that our bodies are a problem, that they are the enemy of the spirit. We actually have, depending on your faith community and the tradition or the texts that you use, we actually are told in like without any minced words, the body is the enemy of the spirit. Like the flesh needs to be conquered. The flesh is, I mean, I'm using my language now, but the flesh is a problem. It gets in the way, it compromises our spiritual integrity. And so we're actually told right from the beginning, like bodies are a problem. And I would say that that's like a a misinterpretation of what I think mostly Paul is trying to say. And I've come like full circle on that. I used to think like, Paul's the enemy, look at what he's saying. And now I'm realizing like, I I was actually never taught to interpret scripture. I was never taught to read scripture in its original language. And I was never shown in a community that we read scripture by imposing our existing cultural worldviews onto it instead of getting into what the writer was saying and why they were saying it in the language that they were saying it in. So we're told these things, but we're also not told that the way we're reading into it tells us more about our culture than it does about the original text. And, and then I think we have like, we can have very disembodied experiences of being in faith communities. Like how much are we allowed to use movement? How much are we allowed to honor and listen to emotion in the body? Like I remember hearing from someone, a a friend of mine who goes to a black church was saying like, sometimes evangelical white communities are considered the, Frozen because they're so immobile in their body. Meanwhile, there are other communities that dance and play and sing. And then there are some, of course, some charismatic communities where you're allowed to, you know, run around and swing flags and kind of dance is considered a really beautiful spiritual expression. So I don't want to say that it's one way across the board, but kind of we forget that our faith traditions are shaped, or that the the things that we hear in our faith communities are often a reflection of what's happening culturally. And that there is kind of like a a pervasive disembodiment in the culture. And then we're also not told to see how our culture is shaping what we're reading into scripture. There's kind of a bi-directional thing that's happening. And so we're getting messages from both sides, cultural, as we're doing the hermeneutics on scripture, which are shaping culture back and forth, back and forth to give us this kind of fragmentation from ourselves.
0: And it's real, man. Yeah, it is it is, real. And I, I think it's a, it's a, it's very subversive to begin starting to pay attention to your body and honor yeah. your emotions and, and yeah. not just operate from that cerebral theological heady place. Yeah. How is this? I really loved the, the part about just like sexuality and sensuality. And you had a quote in there by Audre Lorde that I'll probably mm-hmm. put in the show, show notes about just like defining sexuality either sexuality or sensuality. And so that specifically, but then also just like purity culture and how that is contributed to this and just how sex. Yeah. I would love to hear you just talk about how sexuality and sensuality are part of our body. Too.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh my goodness. But yeah. Sexuality and sensuality belong to us. And I think one of the problems in so many faith communities is that, especially the ones that I encountered is that sexuality was portrayed as something that belongs to somebody else or is only in its expression with another person, kind of like genital to genital contact. And of course, that often went along with the story about there being one right way to do that kind of genital to genital contact. It always needed to be kind of heterosexual. And so so the, the idea of sexuality and sensuality belonging to us and being about us and for us and through us really reminds us that it is housed in here. There are ways to express, I'm pointing to my body. There are ways that we can express it with other people, but it exists here. And what I want to say about sexuality and sensuality too, is that it's, it's a force that moves us into fullness, that there might be some sexual activity that goes along with it, but it is something that is animating in us constantly. It is kind of creative. It comes with desire. It comes with the longing for fulfillment and some sort of completion. And that this is something that can be shared or expressed, but is in us, even when there's nobody else around, even when our genitals have nothing to do with it, that we can feel a sense of our sensuality. And when we are connecting to something where we feel that like, like a fundamental, yes, a fundamental, like existential leaning in, like we think of turn-ons so much in terms of their sexual context, but I'm sure that everyone listening to the podcast has also felt a turn-on in a different way, in an intellectual way, in a different kind of sensory where we're like, oh, we're going to have that dinner or like, oh, that song was so good, that fat beat, like just something where we just want to, oh, like kind of get into our senses and into our bodies as an expression of the goodness of being a body and a goodness of being alive. And I think sensuality, primarily sexuality, these are the forces that cause us to want to expand in our bodies to make even more of ourselves, to make even more creativity, to make even more connection and that they can be at times erotic and at times very, in some ways invisible to other people, just us living into the way that our body wants to say yes to being human and being alive.
0: Being human and being alive, you kind of do feel like that, just like fully alive and Uh moments. I know that I like, like way before I ever experienced an orgasm for the first time, I had these moments with art that were just like, like seriously, like climactic pleasure, just like everything in my body was just like. And I remember thinking one time I was like, I wonder if this is what an orgasm feels like. Cause it was just like, so like every part of my body, was like, so alive, all of the Uh senses were engaged and it was just, it was awesome. And then to like, like that is like, that is the sensuality part. And it doesn't, didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to have anything to do with sex in that particular time. And, and how that is just, yeah. Like just like that word, even sensuality kind of like makes us scared
1: or like, Ooh, mm-hmm. like, what does that mean? Like, it's dangerous. We need to protect it. We don't want, you yeah. know, often when I'm talking about sexuality in this way, like it is, this, it's a force that exists within us calling us and calling life into more fulfilling fulfillment and expression. It's normal for some people to say, well, yeah, well, what about this? Or, or what's the limitation on that? Like, we really want to Ooh. enclose it because yeah. it feels scary. Like we have somehow learned that sexuality is a dangerous thing. And I think that people have weaponized it at times. Mm-hmm. And I also think we've learned to be afraid of it. And we've learned to narrow the definition of what it is to this tiny little box that we can very neatly put mm-hmm. our fingers around and control. Then mm-hmm. really what's happening is life is saying, I want to expand. I want mm-hmm. there to be more of, of all the things that feel good in this world.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, and then I, yeah. And it also just kind of breaks it down into this, like that, like, this is, this is bad. So like, don't mm-hmm. do that, but then this is okay. So just, you know, have fun, but then you're like separating. Yeah. You're just like separating those two things yeah, and, and you're not it out. necessarily accessing your full self. So I guess just kind of like wrapping up the conversation a little bit, uh-huh. how do we find our way
1: back to ourselves? Yeah, you did such a good job describing it earlier by saying we need to pay attention. We need to drop our awareness out of our thought life, out of what we think other people think about our bodies, kind of all the things that we're supposed to be preoccupied with into noticing sensation and paying attention. And especially when we notice that there is something hard, like going towards it instead of running away from it, asking yourself, asking our bodies, what are you trying to say? What do you want me to know? What are you trying to show me? Uh, and really slowing down to start spending more time sensing and experiencing ourselves as bodies. And it might seem like really abstract when I'm talking about that, but it could mean something as simple as like noticing when we're tired or when we feel sadness, instead of thinking about the sad story, noticing what sadness feels like in our body or when something feels good, like there's a a beat on in the car, you know, the radio and we're stopped at a red light, like moving our shoulders a little bit, wanting, you know, seeing what our body wants to do and allowing our body to to have some more freedom and expression.
0: Yeah. It might be a little terrifying too, if it's not Mm -hmm. something that we're used to. Um, Oh yeah. And the terror, very very scary.
1: Right. It's confusing for lots of people because they think the terror is proof that their bodies are bad, as opposed to the terror being a story we learned that makes mm-hmm. us be at odds with ourselves. Like the mm-hmm. terror is not because our bodies are dangerous. The terror is proof that we live in a body phobic culture. Mm. And it I mean, the paradox here is like image obsessed, but body phobic. And those are different Whoa. things. So
0: true. Uh-huh. So, so true. Like, yeah. Absolutely. What are you hoping people will get out of the book?
1: I think I want people to know that their bodies are good and that all bodies are good and that it's time for us to do some cultural work, do some individual work to come home to ourselves and really start to stitch together all of these ways that we've been fragmented from ourselves.
0: What would happen if we lived, if everyone was living in a more embodied way?
1: Well, I just think it's healthier. And I don't mean healthier in a reductive kind of physiological way. I mean, like, I think that that's what's meant to happen. We, we become more of ourselves. I think the the communities that we exist in become more just, I think we have more empathy. I think our mental health is better. I think maybe some structural things change. Like maybe we aren't working as compulsively. Maybe we start walking more instead of, you know, sitting in our cars all day, maybe, It changes the way, you know, how, how close we are to our places of work so that we can access on a bike or with Mm -hmm. a little bit um, of a faster commute. Maybe we slow down and we play with our kids more. Maybe we climb the tree instead of going on our phones. Maybe we Mm -hmm. uh, stop eating when we're full and maybe we eat when we're hungry and we stop dieting if we're chronically hungry. Like maybe there's just so many things that return us back to our I would say the way that we're meant to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Love it. I feel that. I yeah. Love I love it. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to,
1: you want to no. share or say? Is... It's just lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy to chat with you. Great questions and such a fun conversation to have.
0: It was great talking to you, too. Thanks for your book. And I'm oh, excited to read it a second time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review. And don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.